Okay, now we're up and running. Great. Okay. Well, when we were last together before our uh, <coughs> before our blizzard, uh, we were uh, just beginning Genesis chapter 12, and uh, and we had done uh, uh, the first uh, three verses or so of Genesis chapter 12, and. Uh, Today we're going to pick up with uh, pick up with that in verse four, and we're going to read on, study on down through verse nine. So let's just read the passage again, and uh, then we'll review a little bit, and we'll go on from there. So, chapter twelve, verse one. Now the Lord said to Abram, "Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you." And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and those, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. Okay? Well, we talked about those first three verses last week. What do you remember from those first three verses? Thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was all culturally speaking, socially speaking, it was totally counterintuitive what God was asking him to do. What else? Yeah. I don't go nowhere without a road map. <laughs> I don't go anywhere without a road map. And even if I get lost, I'm <laughs> That's right. So the Lord tells him to go. He says, I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to show it to you. But he goes out, and Hebrews is very explicit on this. He goes out. He does not know where he's going. What else? Yeah, and here in a couple chapters or so, we're going to see that he has at least 300 servants born in his own house. So, he has, a, he has a huge entourage. How many of those he had when he left Haran, we don't know, but presumably most, if not all of those he had when he left Haran. So, he has a huge entourage and he has all these possessions and everything else. And God's saying, pack it all up and move and, 
and I'll tell you where we're going. You know, when we this week we packed up my daughter and 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 my son-in-law to send them off to the Caribbean. You know, and and we're packing that truck. At least we knew where they were going. <laughs> Abram's packing everything, and he really doesn't know where he's going to ever be able to unpack it. You know, it's quite a story. What else? God was taking him from the comfort and security that he had. And that's the same with us. And he wants us to be totally reliant on him. Yeah. 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 The call of faith. He said, I'll take care of you. I'll bless those that bless you. I'll curse those. So basically, I'm going to take care of you. Yeah. And so he gives, in addition to those remarkable instructions that he gives him, he gives him these remarkable promises like what you're just referring to. And, and, those, and there are seven of them, as we saw uh, when we were together last. There are seven of those promises, and they fall into two categories. The first three are promises which apply pretty much directly to Abram. I'll make of you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great. So they're promises to Abraham as a person. And the second Group, the last four promises are really promises about the impact that Abraham's life or Abram's life will have on others. Okay, and so Abram becomes, uh, as we see in this uh, passage, Abram becomes the blessing bearer. Remember, and we talked about Abram as the blessing bearer. He's the one who carries the blessing. God's intention is to bless all the nations of the earth. And his plan now to do that is to bless one man and through the blessing that he bestows upon that one man to effect a blessing upon all the nations. And that's his plan. That's his strategy. So now this whole, this whole blessing thing is contingent upon Abraham and God's blessing upon Abraham and, God's, and Abraham's response to God uh, by faith and his and his obedience to God, the whole thing, the whole, God's whole plan of how He now plans to bless all the nations of the earth, all hinges on this one guy. He's the blessing bearer. But as then He has descendants, both physical descendants and descendants, spiritual descendants, those descendants also, as we saw uh, a couple weeks ago, those descendants also become the blessing bearers. So you and I are blessing bearers as well. We are the means by which God disseminates His blessings to the nations. Okay, And uh, so we talked about that. Anything else that we talked about that comes to your mind? Uh, something we didn't talk about that comes to mind. You always bring up what we didn't talk about, Jim. Well, you'll be, I think you'll be glad that I did. Okay, okay. <laughs> the, uh, the thing that struck me almost right away whenever I read or we talked about uh, in verse 2 where God says that He will make His name great. I reflected back uh, to Tower of Babel. Yeah. These guys, uh, chapter 11, verse 4, where it says their intent was to make their name great. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the contrast was, was pretty stark. Here are these guys trying to do it in their own effort. Yeah. And they, except for the fact that they're mentioned in Scripture, we don't know who they are. So in one sense, they, their name was great. But yeah. we don't know who those guys are by name. But uh, Abram... God's the one that did that, yeah. and He indeed became great. Yeah. And uh, so, in one case, man's trying to do it on his own power and, and fails, and when God does it, it will not fail. Yeah. And it reminds me of the instruction one uh, later in the Old Testament when when God is giving instructions to <clears throat> to the servant of the man of God, and He says, "Do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them." 
And, and what we have there in, at the Tower of Babel, like you say, is, is people who are seeking greatness for themselves. And Abram's concern, rather, is the greatness of God. And because his concern and his passion is for the greatness of God, God makes his name great. Okay, well, then that leaves us with a couple questions. Uh, and the first question is, God has given now these remarkable instructions and these remarkable promises to Abraham. And the question that we have is, what is Abraham's response? Will Abraham believe God? And will Abraham or Abram believe, uh, obey God? Okay, so that would be the first question. What is Abram's response? And then the second question that we want to look at today is what is life in the land of promise and blessing look like? And that's one of the things we're going to we're going to look at as we see this first initial sojourn of Abram through the land of promise. We're going to explore a little bit this question of what is what does the land of promise look like, and 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 what are the places that we have to stop on our way through the land of promise and encounter uh, on our way through the land of promise, but. Before we do, I would like to take a moment and play a, a song. I, it's been, apparently been on my computer for I don't know how long. And when I was purging files off my computer uh, here a while back, I stumbled across this song and I went, hey, this is a good song. We've got to listen to this one in class. It's a song by Andrew Peterson, and the title of the song is Canaan Bound. So I'll play that just uh, by way of just kind of setting the tone for today, and then we'll, and then we'll go on. And if this will work, we'll...
So our first question is, did Abram believe God? How do you know? He went. We know that Abraham believed what God told him and all those magnificent promises that God told him. We know that Abraham believed the promises of God because we see it in his works. Right? Isn't that what James tells us? <laughs> we know the faith of Abram because as we read the story further from where we were last, uh, last time we were together, as we read on and we pick it up in verse 4, we find that Abram does in fact get up and go. And so by Abram's action of moving to Canaan, you and I can look at the life of Abram and we can say, Abram was a man of faith. Abram believed God. Okay? So we know by the evidence of his having gone to Canaan that he in fact believed God. But there's a deeper question that I asked as I was thinking about this uh, this week is, could Abram have believed God and remained in Haran? You're shaking your head. Well, I think that's the point. The reason Abram's work is evidence of his faith is because, because once Abram believed God, once those seven promises began to settle into the mind and the heart of Abram, and he actually went, yeah, he's going to do that, then it was inevitable that he go to Canaan. He's compelled to go to Canaan. So, it's just, so, so when, when somebody truly believes God, when somebody truly lays hold of the promises of God, their life is altered. That's what James is trying to tell us. You cannot separate the works from the faith. Abraham was not declared righteous because of his works. But his works are the inevitable result of believing God. Having believed God that there are these promises of of a great nation and of a and of, of great blessing both to him and to those whose lives he touches and to many people whom he'll never ever know or ever ever see, having embraced those promises, those promises are inextricably linked to the land of Canaan. And he cannot have the promise without going to the land. Okay? So so his faith compels him having now heard these promises of God, he is driven by his faith to go to Canaan. Yes? What came to mind in all this was to borrow a phrase, he literally put feet to his face. Yeah, really, he did. And, and in fact, I think like, like uh, Rick is saying here, we, if we really believed, then we would act. That's what we see in Abram. Because he really believed, he acted. Yes? Mm-hmm. That believed in Jesus, yeah, they didn't confess him before men, but they 
love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Mm-hmm. But it says they believed in him. I just, I mean, this is an example of faith that doesn't work. Uh, or a belief that doesn't actually result in the I'm wondering about that. Uh, it didn't result in their public confession. Right. I don't know that it. I I, I don't know that we have a, a basis to say it didn't affect their conduct, right. their moral conduct and their conduct of character. Okay, they didn't. They were unwilling to make a public confession. Ultimately, we find when we get to the Book of Acts that they do make a public confession. Uh, so ultimately, eventually, they do. But but clearly, there was a lag time there. You, you know, and there's there was a a period of of delay there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, so Abram then is compelled by his faith to go to Canaan. But there's something really important he needs to do. You've got to do before you can pack your bags and move to Canaan. What does Abram have to do here before he can move to Canaan? Okay, well, he doesn't really have to say goodbye. He could sneak out in the, in the dark of night like Jacob does later when he leaves Aaron. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I would think, uh, even though God specifically called Abraham to do it, he would have a hard time. Uh, I think he would have a hard time because what he was called to do was something that you know, he just didn't do. So he had to convince you know, all his servants, his wife, his children, well, you touch on it. Uh, certainly, he needed to address his servants, but to them, their life is tied up in his anyway. So, whatever he does, their fortunes hinge on him. So, uh, so. Uh, so they're going to go with him one way or another. But you're right. There's one person he's got to talk to, right? <laughs> he's got to talk to Sarai. Okay. He's got to go to Sarai and say, you know, Sarai, I was out for a walk this morning and, uh, and God started speaking to me and she's going, okay, you know. Now, we need to remember about Sarah that she herself is a godly woman. And we learn that. Uh, both from her conduct here in Genesis, but as we read about her in the New Testament, we discover that she was a holy woman and that she was a woman of faith and she was a woman with a, with a heart of submission to her husband because of her faith in God. Okay? It wasn't just some abject, you know, mindless submission to Abram, but, but she submitted to Abram because she had faith that God was working through Abraham to direct her life. And so, so at some point, and of course the Scriptures leave the story entirely silent for us here. We really don't know what goes on here. We only get a glimpse of it later in the New Testament when we read about Sarah's submission and Sarah's faith in God. But, but as I kind of in my as I put the pieces of the puzzle together and maybe put a little meat on the skeleton with my own imagination, I see Abram coming to Sarai, this great woman of faith, and he comes to her. And he tells her, I have heard from God. And God says we're to leave our country. We're to leave this land that has made us so prosperous. And we are to leave all of our relatives because they are idol worshippers and we worship God. <laughs> and we are to leave my father's house. We're, made, we're, we're going to make this break with this patriarchal system that, that is the only thing we in our whole culture knows. We're going to make this break. And we're going to go to the land of promise. 
Now, initially, of course, he doesn't know specifically that the land of promise will be Canaan, but obviously that's the direction he heads. Okay, and, and I find that interesting that he goes on towards Canaan. Now, I don't know specifically why he went to Canaan. Uh, I have some ideas. One is, remember, they originally set out with his father from the land of the Ur of Chaldees to go to Canaan, but they only made it as far as Haran. Okay? So maybe he thought, well, we'll just keep going on this journey until God shows me what, you know, what his tensions are or where he wants me. Uh, so that may have been another reason. one reason. Another reason is they've already come from Ur. Why go back that direction? Let's, you know, let's keep going some other direction. Obviously, back there isn't, isn't the land of promise. So we'll just keep moving forward on this journey that we started sometime before. I don't know why he went to Canaan. When he left for Canaan, he didn't know that that was the place. But certainly knew that wherever he was going, it was the land of promise. And if it was in Canaan, and I don't think there's any indication here. In fact, in the initial promise here in chapter 12, there's not even a promise that, they, that he will possess the land. It's only a promise that he is to go and that God will show him where he is to go. Okay, But there's actually not an explicit promise here in the initial promise. It's not explicit that he will be given the land. He doesn't actually get that explicit promise until he gets to Shechem, as we see later in the story. Okay, So Abram sets out and he heads out for the land of Canaan. And, and uh, when he sets out, he sets out with his, uh, all of his possessions and everything, but there's somebody else going with him. Who's going with him? His nephew Lot. Yeah. Lot is going with them, okay? And and he really makes a Moses really makes a point of that here as he records this for us. Because he tells us twice. He says Lot went with him, and then in the next verse he says he took Lot with him. Okay. And uh, and the question came up last time we were together, why did Lot go with him? You know? And Mike was asking the question, why did Lot go with him and and and, uh, and I think Mike suggested maybe there was some uh, mercenary uh, intent there in, in Lot's mind you know maybe he was thinking well you know my uncle's pretty rich and you know if I hang around with him uh, he doesn't have any descendants so so maybe if I hang around with him uh, the, uh, <coughs> the his wealth will fall to me okay and uh, so that's one possibility I actually lean towards another uh, explanation for Lot's uh, departure and and I do because there's several things we know about Lot and we know about Abram and we know about the whole legal system at the time and one of the things we know is that in in Genesis 15 it's very clear that legally Abram's inheritance is to go to somebody born in his own house and so that means that legally his inheritance until the birth of Isaac is is destined to go to Eliezer. Okay, and, and that becomes clear in chapter 15. Okay, so his inheritance is, is intended to go uh, or is illegally is bound to go apparently to Eliezer. But but also we know some things about Lot and it doesn't come out real clear as we read about Lot in Genesis. And we're going to read a lot about him. No pun intended. We're going to read more about him uh, as we go through Genesis. But one of the things we discover about Lot later in the scripture makes it very explicit that Lot was a righteous man whose soul was vexed by the unrighteousness that we saw around. Now, as we read through the story in Genesis, we're going to find that there are times when Lot places prosperity over principle. And Lot makes some pretty serious mistakes in his life. Okay, So that's clear. He's got some character flaws. But he is a righteous man, which means he's not an idol worshiper. 
And remember all the rest of Abram's family there, Terah, his father, and all the others there, his, uh, his brother Nahan, and they're all idol worshippers. Okay? And so if Abram and Sarai, who worship God, leave Haran, and Lot, who is a righteous man, is not an idol worshipper, remains, he remains alone without any spiritual support in this family of idol worshipers, okay? So, so I would suggest, at least it seems to me as I look at the story, that Lot, one of the things Lot is doing is Lot is thinking, I'm going to stay with the guy who worships God. I'm going to go with the guy who worships God, okay? But I think there's something else going on here. When God gives his seven promises to Abram, he makes Abram the blessing bearer, remember? He makes Abram the blessing bearer. And he says to Abram, whoever blesses you, I will bless. And the one who curses you, I will curse. So that means that when someone blessed Abram or gave their assent or their agreement or their consent to Abram, they would receive from God a blessing. And so I think in Lot's decision to go with Abram, there is implicit in that a blessing on Abram. There's a statement that, okay, I don't know all that's going on here, but I think God's with this guy. I'm blessing Abram. And I would rather associate myself with the guy who has the blessing, even if I don't have the blessing myself. Because if I associate myself with him, then somehow I will be blessed. Rick? I think for Sarah, in a way, it was a similar situation. Sure. Yeah. 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 It was only implied in the in the great nation thing, but it was very ambiguous. Yeah, and she wanted to be a part of that. And there's a real lesson in that, isn't there? That that there's a value, there's a merit in associating ourselves with the people who have the blessing of God on their lives. And ultimately, hopefully, we'll go further than that and our experience will be deeper than that. But, but there, is a, there is something, something to be said for saying, I see God's blessing on this person and that's where I want to be. And Lot, I think, chooses to be with the guy who's blessed rather than to stay where everything's comfortable and stay and live according to the culture and the dictates of society and live among these idol worshipers, he wants to be with the guy who is blessed. And so he goes. And for that reason, I think, one, I think that, for my personal opinion, is that, is that Lot's motive in going is generally a good motive. And it's, a, and it's also the reason why I believe that Abraham's Taking Lot with him was not an act of disobedience. Remember, God told him to leave his family. Okay, but the idea there, I think, is to is to leave that part of his family who didn't want to be a part of this thing that God was doing. So I don't think there was anything uh, untoward in in Abram's decision uh, to take Lot with him. So he takes Lot with him, and it says there 
that Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, verse 4, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai's wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions and, uh, that they had accumulated and all the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for Haran and thus they came to the land of Canaan. Now when you read that last part of that verse, they set out for the land of Canaan and thus they came to the land of Canaan. Does that ring any bells in your mind? Does that catch your attention? I mean, it all seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? <laughs> Isn't it a given that if you set out for a place, you're going to arrive there? It's not a given, is it? Because it wasn't with terror, was it? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Okay. So, we have the example of Terah, who originally, with Abram and his, the rest of his family, set out for the land of Canaan, and they never got there. Now, Abram sets out for the land of Canaan, and it says, thus they arrived in the, thus they arrived in the land of Canaan. Now, why did Abram arrive in the land of Canaan and Terah never did? Yeah. Abram was a man of faith. And Terah was not. And so what we see in Terah is we see a man who initially desires the, the good things that are attendant with the land of promise. Although, of course, it wasn't his land or his promise. But he saw those good things in Canaan that he wanted... And he set out for it, but he didn't set out by faith. And we don't know why they stopped in Haran. But they get about halfway to the land of Canaan and they stop. And they never go any further. And that's characteristic of the person who's not walking by faith. Is that he wants all the bennies of the land of promise. He wants all the bennies of the land of blessing. The people who don't know God and don't love God and don't worship God, they still want all the goodies that God will give them. And they might even set out to acquire those. But somewhere along the line, something else catches their eye. Something distracts them. As I was thinking about that, it reminds me, it reminded me of the Lord's parable of the seed, right? where the seed is cast on the four kinds of ground and one of the kinds of ground that the seed is cast on, he says it springs up gladly and it's going to grow, you know, and then the weeds choke it out. And I think that's what we see happening in the life of terror. There's not real faith there. I was thinking also where Jesus speaks of Kent and Klaus, the guy who began to build. Yeah, 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 it's a good one. Yeah. So Terah never makes it, but Abram does because Abram is a man of faith. And Abram demonstrates for us in this the principle of great faith. We've talked about that a number of other times in this class. It's, it's how is faith measured? When we get into the New Testament, we hear the Lord talking oftentimes about great faith and little faith. And how do we, how do we measure great faith and how do we measure Little faith, okay? And there are a couple stories in the, Old, in the New Testament, in the Gospel accounts, that tell us how we measure faith, okay? 
And one of them is the story of the Canaanite woman who is sick. And she comes to the Lord uh, for, for him. I forget now whether it's for her or for her child. But anyway, she comes to the Lord and she's petitioning the Lord and, and the Lord keeps pushing her away. Remember that? He keeps pushing her away. He calls her a dog. And he keeps shoving her off. And she just keeps coming back. And finally the Lord grants her her request which in the whole scheme of the story is really not all that big of a request because you know, thousands of people have been healed by now, so this really isn't all that big of a thing to believe God for. But she's just not going to give up till she gets it. And then finally the Lord gives her her request and He refers to her great faith and says, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And He refers to her faith as great. Well, there's another story. And that's the story of Peter in the boat. Remember, Peter's in the boat with the other disciples and the storm is going and they're out there all by themselves and Jesus isn't with them. And then Jesus comes walking to them on the water and they get all freaked out and then finally they realize, hey, this might be the Lord. And Peter calls out and he says, Lord, if it's you, do what? Yeah, tell me, bid me come to you. So the Lord says, come to me. And Peter, in faith, responds to the call of Christ and gets out of the boat and walks on water. Right? At this point, I get out my big medallion, great faith, and I pin it on Peter's chest. Right? Because Peter's walking on water. You know, I think what Peter's doing here is bigger than what the Canaanite woman did. He's walking on water. But then, of course, you know the story. He looks around. He, 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 he doubts and he starts to sink and the Lord comes and He pulls him out of the water and what's the first thing the Lord says to him? Why do you have such little faith? So we learn from these two stories that the measure of, the, of your faith is not the bigness of the thing you're believing for, but the duration of your faith. It's not how big you believe. It's not, it's not whether you're believing God to you know, do, you know, move some big mountain or just build a little hill over here. It's, it's not a question of the bigness of what you're believing for. It's how long will you believe? And when we, only, when, we, when, when we believe the promise of God and we believe for a period of time and we hold on for a period of time and then eventually it just takes so long. It takes weeks or months or years and eventually we just kind of well maybe I had it wrong and you may have believed God for 20 or 25 years and you may have stopped your faith is little because the measure of the greatness of faith is whether or not you believe until you have the promise yeah that's why it's so important for things that we stand on Yeah. Yeah, that's right. In other words, we've got to know what is the promise of God. Yeah. Well, so Abram arrives in the land of Canaan. And then we get this kind of little sequence. This is a real, real interesting sequence. Well, you may, may not think it's interesting, but it really is interesting. And as we unpack it here, I think you'll see that it is. He goes first to Shechem. And he goes to the site of Shechem by the Oak of Morah. And there, oh, by the way, he mentions 
the Canaanites are in the land. And it's really interesting what's gone on here because as the story has unfolded, beginning there at the end of chapter 11 and then in chapter 12, the Lord is giving to us, or telling us here in this story, the promises that He has given to Abram. But before He gives us the promises, He tells us what the circumstances are. So you remember that back at the end of chapter 11, He makes a point, a very forceful point, about the barrenness of Sarai. And he says, Sarai, his wife, was barren. She had no child. And so he's very forcefully pointing out to us Abram's reality. This is Abram's reality. This is his world. He and his wife are a genealogical cul-de-sac. They are the end of the line. Okay? This is his reality. So whatever else goes on in his life, he's a worshiper of God and he follows God, but he just knows he's the end of the line. And now we find out when he gets to the land of Canaan, as he's going through the land of Canaan, he looks around and he goes, well, this must not be the place the Lord's taken me because this place is full of Canaanites. They own this land. This is Abram's reality. This is his world. He's a genealogical cul-de-sac and he's a nomad in a land that belongs to somebody else. This is the scenario that's set up for us. But then come the promises of God. So here he is at Shechem in the land of Canaan with a barren wife and God comes to him and he says, to your descendants I will give this land. One short little sentence that totally alters Abram's reality. See, up till now, Abram's reality is this is the end of the line for my family. This is the end of the line and this land is not mine. And in one statement from God, his entire reality shifts because that's what the promise of God does. We have these circumstances. And in Abram's life, he has these two circumstances. He has the barrenness of his wife which means that he and his wife are inwardly inadequate to realize the promise of God. And secondly, the Canaanites are in the land, which means there's this great external obstacle to realizing the promises of God. So he has both his internal inadequacy and his external circumstances, both of which cry out against him and against him, his experience, but now he has the promise of God and his reality is altered. And that's the way it is in your life. You have your pre-promise reality and then you have your post-promise reality. And the post-promise reality is now your reality. Your reality is the promise of God. So he comes to Shechem and it says God appears to him. Now, this is the first case we have of a, of a theophany or Christophany with Abram. Up till now, we just had God speaking to him. It's not clear that God has appeared to him. But now God actually appears to him, apparently in the Christophany. Okay, That he appears to him and he makes this simple statement, to your descendants I will give this land. I don't know what else he said. I don't know how, how long this interaction between him and God went on. But the essence of it that Moses wants us to know about is that God had told him, to your descendants I will give this land. And what is the response of Abram? 
he built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. Okay? So he builds an altar. And what's happening here at Shechem is that Abram is building an altar to say, this is my future. This is it. This is the place he told me. You know, before I left Haran, he said he'd show me a land. Now he's shown me this is my future. And in building the altar, Abram is sanctifying this land. He's staking his claim on this land. And in doing so, he's making his final break with Haran. So it really is, Shechem becomes, and as you'll see here in a minute, as it unfolds in redemptive history, Shechem becomes the place of choosing. Shechem becomes the place of leaving the past behind and moving forward. Okay. And we'll see more about that in a minute. Well, then from Shechem, he moves on to the mountain there to the east of Bethel. And he pitches his tent to the, with Bethel to the east or to the west and Ai on the east. He pitches his tent there. And then it says he built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. Now there's... Now things are escalated a little bit more. Before, it was just God was speaking to Abram. And then we get to Shechem and God appears to Abram. And now we get to Bethel, which at the time is actually called Luz. He gets to Bethel and he, Abram, it says, begins to call upon the name of the Lord. And so what we see at Bethel is, is there's, a, there's another step forward in Abram's relationship with God. So no longer is Abram simply listening to God and responding to God, but there's something else. And and the writer doesn't go into any depth or explain it to us in any detail, but obviously there's there's an escalation. There's a growth. There's a development in Abram's relationship with God at this point. And, and he begins to call upon God. Now, I don't know why he felt compelled to call, Paul, call upon God. Maybe it was the overwhelming nature of these promises and now he gets to Bethel and he's going, God, how is all this? And he needs to ask God or plead with God. I don't know what he was asking God for or pleading God for, but there was something. And now he felt sufficiently, can I use this term, at home with God and felt so much that God was his God that he could call upon God. He didn't didn't just have to wait for God to talk to him. But he could actually go to God. And that his relationship with God was such that, that it was okay that he would be bold and come into the presence of God and call upon the name of God. And so Bethel becomes this place of deepening worship and experience of God. And we see that again unfold more as redemptive history unfolds. Yes? Do we know... We don't know for sure, but this is obviously very early in the story. And and I assume all of this is within the first year after he's left here. But we don't know that for sure. After, after his encounter then at Bethel, it says simply that he journeyed on toward the Negev. He journeys on towards the south. And the significance of that is, is he goes on down toward Hebron. And Hebron becomes the place where Abram spends the bulk of the rest of his life. Hebron is where 
Abram lives out his life in the land of promise, still dwelling in tents, etc., etc. But Hebron is pretty much it for Abram. Okay? And he spends his time there. He dwells there. And it's there where he waits and he waits and he waits and he waits and he waits for the fulfillment of the promise. The, the first installment of the fulfillment of the promise, which is the giving of the son, the second part of the promise, of course, he never sees, as, Hebron, as Hebrews tells us. Okay. Well, as I've, as I've implied, these places all have further significance. And when we think about Shechem, there's actually a number of incidences in, in Old Testament history where Shechem plays a significant role. And, and one of them we'll, we'll find as we go on further in the story of Genesis and we get to the story of Jacob. And you'll remember that Jacob, because of his, of his plotting and scheming and treachery and all that sort of thing, uh, falls out with his brother and he has to flee for his life for, to Haran. So he leaves and he goes to Haran and he's in Haran for, in exile for 20 years. And on his way out, of, on his way to Haran, he stops and he spends the night sleeping at Bethel. And it's at Bethel that Jacob has that dream that you always hear about. Jacob and the ladder and the angels. And, you know, and, and the focus is always on Jacob and the ladder and the angels. But the real issue, I mean, that's what we usually talk about and the paint pictures and you know, the ladder. And the, but the real significance of, of, of Jacob's dream at Bethel is that God spoke to him. And God said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to give you this land and I'm going to give you descendants and I'm going to be with you as you go out and I'm going to be with you when you're out wherever you are and I'm going to bring you back. And Jacob gets up and he goes, oh, that's cool. And he builds a little altar there to remember that. But it really doesn't sink in. And he goes away and he lives pretty much a carnal life when he's in Haran. And he's in Haran for 20 years, and when he comes back, he brings his, now his family, his wives and his children, and they're all their whole entourage and their animals and everything, and they come back, and the first place they come back to is Shechem. And he comes to Shechem, which is in the northern part of Canaan. He comes to Shechem, and, in Shechem, they, and he settles there in Shechem for a while, and there's some ugly stuff that goes on there and stuff. And, but then God says to him, okay, I want you to go to Bethel. And Jacob goes, wait a minute, I can't go to Bethel till I do my Shechem business. And so he goes to his family and he says, okay, folks, we've got to put away our idols. And that's that story where he goes to his family and, he tells, and they take all their idols and they go and they hide them under a tree and they, they put away because they can't go further into the land of promise until they've done their Shechem business. And their Shechem business is the place of division. It's the place of separation. It's the place of choosing. It's the place of saying, I'm choosing my future and I'm forgetting my past. And I'm leaving my past behind me. So incidentally, that's exactly the same thing that happens with the whole nation of Israel when they come in in the conquest. And, and in Deuteronomy, Moses commands them, when you get into... Uh, when you get into the promised land, I want you to go to the mountains of Ebal and Gerizim and half of you on one mountain and half of me on the other mountain and I want you to read the law and read the blessings and read the curses. And that's exactly what they do. You read about it in Joshua chapter 8. Joshua, once they get into the land, he takes them to the mountains of Gerizim and, and Ebal and he puts half of the, half of the nation on one uh, mountain and half the nation on the other mountain and they built an altar just as Moses instructed. And what's significant about that is the mountains of Gerizim and Ebal are right there by Shechem. It's the place of blessing or cursing. 
And God is saying to the nation of Israel, you choose. Which will it be? And it's interesting that it's also at Shechem that Joshua gives, later in Joshua, gives his farewell speech. Joshua 24. Remember that? And in Joshua 24, you remember what Joshua says? Choose you, you this day whom you will serve. That's at Shechem. Whether it will be the gods that your father served on the other side of the river, etc., etc., et but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Shechem is the place where we put away our idols. And it's the first place that we stop and do business when we enter into the land of blessing and promise. If we really want to go deep into the land of God's blessing and in the land of God's promise, we've got to stop at Shechem and deal with the idols in our lives. You know, the things that we rely upon, the things that we put our confidence in, the things that we love more than God, the things that we worship, the things we serve. I would suggest even our false ideas about God. All of those things, if we really want to have the full depth of the experience of the promise and the blessings of God, we're going to have to deal with those idols in our lives. And we're going to have to set them aside. And that's what Shechem is. Well, Jacob, when he comes, and he stops at Shechem and they put away their idols and then he moves on to Bethel. And when he comes to Bethel, he says something really interesting. Because he remembers back 20 years earlier when he had that dream. He may even have seen, you know, may even see again that little, you know, monument that he built there at Bethel. And he remembers the promise of God. But one thing he said before he left, when he stopped at Bethel the first time, he says, God, if you keep these promises when I come back, then you will be my God. <laughs> That's scary stuff, isn't it? <laughs> he's he's kind of laying down this kind of, you know, God, we're going to play games. We're going to play things this way. Well, don't ask me why, but God did it His way. He watches over him. He keeps him safe. He brings him back. And when he gets back, Jacob goes, okay, you're my God. So, you know, I think Jacob was a believer in God and a follower of God, even all of, during all those carnal years in Haran. But, but something happened at Bethel. As with Abraham, his relationship with God took a dramatic step forward. And God became his God. You know, we talked a few minutes ago about Lot and Lot just kind of riding on Abram's coattails and getting the blessing vicariously through Abram. Okay? But if we're going to really experience in our lives the land of promise and the land of God's blessing, at some point we have to stop riding on other people's coattails. And some, sometime we have to come to the point where we no longer say, I'm satisfied to have the blessing that my wife has or the blessing that my husband has, or the blessing that my parents have, or the blessing that my church has. I want Him to be my God. It's not enough. It's not enough that I simply walk with a godly person. But I want to be a godly person. I want Him to be my God. And when, I, and, and, and when He becomes for us our God, then we're starting to really get into the center of the land of promise and the land of blessing. Then we're really getting into the meat of it. Well, 
from there, Abram journeyed on to Hebron, to the Negev. And incidentally, so does Isaac. Eventually, I mean, excuse me, Jacob. Eventually, Jacob moves on from Bethel and he moves to Hebron, where Isaac is, his father, and where his grandfather Abram spent all of his years. And he goes on and eventually settles there in Hebron. And if Shechem represents for us the place of choosing and the place of deciding, and if Hebron represents that place of a, of, of a, of a real deepening of our relationship with God, then what does Hebron represent? Hebron represents for us what life is really like in the land of promise. Because that's where Abram spent 25 years before he saw Isaac. In other words... Abram just simply lived in the land, believed the promises of God, and walked with God year after year after year after year after year after year by faith. You know, we, we sometimes have this idea of our spiritual life of being always Shechem's and Bethel's and all that sort of thing. But spiritual life is not always Shechem's and Bethel's and things like that. Most of our spiritual life is Hebron. Most of our spiritual life is spent just dwelling in the land of promise by faith. And we do have the mountaintop experiences and God is gracious to give us those mountaintop experiences. But most of our life is spent in the mundane life of Hebron just saying that even though I don't see the promise yet, I believe God for it. It is, as the psalmist says in Psalm 37, dwelling in the land and cultivating faithfulness. And it is at Hebron. It's not at Shechem and it's not at Bethel, but it's at Hebron that the greatness of our faith is tested, right? Because if the measure of, of a faith's greatness is how long it endures, then it's in that long, 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 long wait at Hebron that the greatness of my faith is demonstrated. As I wait patiently, patiently, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. Looking for a city whose architect and builder is God. And that's what Hebron represents. Okay, well next week we'll go on and we'll look at this interesting story about his little sojourn down into Egypt. Okay?